Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we want 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to be your favorite place to go to enjoy a great mix of vintage detective shows from the golden age of radio. The scripts were great, the action was hot, and even the old commercials are enjoyable. And now, another episode of 1001 Radio Crime Solvers is ready to go. Enjoy! Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Hiding Place. Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Waltman. The bookends? Well, let me see now. That was the little Dutch figurines, wasn't it, the boy and the girl? All right, fine. Well, I'll have to... Oh, hold... Hold the line a minute, Mr. Waltman. Mr. Marlowe, you... You're back. Yes, Mrs. Bryant. Did you find him, Mr. Marlowe? Did you find Chipper? Chipper is dead, Mrs. Bryant. Oh. oh Take I, it easy, Mrs. I, Bryant. Maybe you better sit down no, here. No, no. I'm all right. There's a customer waiting on the phone. I'll finish that. Then I want you to tell me everything you found out about my son. Sure, sure. I'll only be a moment. Martha Bryant went to the telephone. I braced myself for the story I had to tell her. I tried to figure some last-minute way of making hard facts a little softer for a sweet, brave, gray-haired lady who deserved a better break. The first thought about what had happened brought the whole ugly business rushing back at me again. 
turned my mind back like a clock to where it had all begun yesterday morning in my office. And that same Martha Bryan, full of hope and quiet courage, had walked up to my desk, handed me a letter, and asked me to find her son. His name's Chipper, Mr. Marlowe. Or rather, Chip, now that he's a grown man, he's uh-huh. 22. He left suddenly without a word six months ago. Oh. I've heard nothing until this morning when that letter they addressed to Chip came in the mail. Postmark St. Louis Obispo. Oh, sit down, won't you, Mrs. Bryant? Thank yeah. you. Maybe I shouldn't have opened it, but... Well, you see, it's the first indication I've had in all that time that he's even alive. Read it. Uh-huh. Dear Chip, it's been a long drag, but the waiting is finally over, darling. Time is now. Meet me at 11.30 Monday night at the house with the big wheel, signed Toby. House with the big wheel, what does that mean, Mrs. Bryant? I have no idea. But for some reason, it frightens me. Oh. 11.30 Monday night. Monday night, that must be tonight. Who is this Toby? Toby Packler. She's a very, very beautiful young woman. Platinum blonde. Oh. Chipper believed he was in love with her, I'm afraid. Oh, <laughs> please don't misunderstand me, Mr. Marlowe. I'm not a possessive mother. I knew I'd give Chipper up someday, only... I hoped it would be to a nice, sincere girl. Toby Packler isn't? She's much too fast. The kind who uses too much mascara and wears things like those little anklet chains they call slave bracelets. I tried to find her after Chip left, but she was gone, too. Oh. Tell me, did you and your son argue about Toby, Mrs. Bryant? No, no. I only saw her once. He knew I didn't think much of her, but that didn't drive him away, Mr. Marlowe. What did? Well, I've never been able to understand after his father died, Chip became irresponsible and a little wild, perhaps. Especially since I had to spend all my time running our gift shop on Ivar. But, but he was a good boy, really. I tried to convince myself that he left just to prove his independence, to uh, test his wings, you know. But now... Now what, Mrs. Bryant? Now I'm worried. That letter, it puzzles me. I don't like it. Well, it may mean nothing more than you're getting a daughter-in-law who uses too much mascara. I hope you're right. I want Chip to be happy, to settle down. I, I want to turn my business over to him. And Will you try to locate him for me? Here, I have his picture here in my wallet. See? <laughs> Say, Chip looks a lot like his mother, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Please find out if my son is all right. Sure. I'll do my best. From my office window, I watched her leave the building. Saw her stop politely and answer a question for an oily sidewalk passerby in a black pinstripe suit. Then move quietly on down the street toward her shop on Ivar. A neat, gentle, very lonely woman. I hoped I'd find a happy story for her in San Luis Obispo. She had one coming. I was still hoping five hours later when I pulled into a mobile gas station in the little town at the foot of the Santa Lucia Mountains, 200 miles up the coast. I filled up, asked a few questions, and found out that there were only four good hotels, five not so good, and two or three dozen motor courts, and that ran the gamut. So even with nothing but the name Toby to go on, the job wasn't completely impossible. 
By the time I'd worked my way down into the motor courts, the sun was sneaking off between the rocky hills toward the ocean. And I was still collecting negative answers. Until I tried a mirrored neon combination bar, restaurant, and motel called Pinkies on the north edge of town. Sorry, mister. No Toby Packler registered here. Now, wait a minute. Are you sure? She's a lovely platinum blonde about... About, about what? Huh? Well, never mind. Skip it, Pinky. Maybe this is better. When I glanced across the lobby at the bar, I caught a man watching me. He was the same oily character in a black pinstripe suit that I'd seen stop Mrs. Bryan on the street outside my office back in L.A. He ducked away, and I beat it into a bar. Just in time to see him slip out a side door. So I followed him. Outside a gravel path wormed through a grove of dejected pepper trees. Wound up in a lonely walled patio, and when I got there, Oily was out of sight. The reason was simple. The nose of his gun in my back said he was behind me. Don't move, Marlowe. Well, well. Name and all. Yeah, sure. I've been tailing you every inch of the way since old lady Bryant went to see you this morning. What's the connection, Oily? Exactly six long months of watching and waiting. For what? For a move a new two skunks would have to make sometime. And from the way you've been working, you don't know enough to do yourself any good or me any harm. So take some advice. Go back to L.A. Leave it alone. Leave what alone? That's none of your business, people. I'll take over from here. But just in case you run into Chip Bryant or Toby on your way out of town, tell them from me they're not cutting Lou Race out of his share of 110 grand. I'm going to get it one way or another. And so you won't forget... Use that. Oh! For a reminder. When the brick floor of the patio finally stopped pushing, I was alone. Except for my ugly thoughts. I knew I was on the right track, but from the sound of things, Chipper Bryant was much less a mama's boy than his mama believed. I made sure Lou Race was nowhere around the motel. And I went into the bar again to see what a double scotch would do for my headache. The bartender, obviously, was the type who got around. So I took a chance and asked him about Toby Packler. It was no good. But when I described Toby as a beautiful platinum blonde, a girl sitting alone, two stools down, a, a girl with a short, ragged, mouse-brown hair and extremely flat, misformed face, dropped her eyes and looked away. I suddenly felt very cheap. I flipped a silver buck on the bar and got up. You know, it was the kind of dumb stunt you can't apologize for. You just leave. I was halfway to my car before I realized that the girl had followed me out. Hey, mister. Yeah, are you? Just a minute. I turned and watched her come toward me. In the garish neon light, her face was jarringly unreal, the color and texture of hard putty. I, uh... I heard you inside when you asked about Toby. Yeah, I, I thought you had... Do you know her, Miss... Palmer. Oh. Yeah, I know her. She's one of my few friends. What do you want with Toby? Well, my Who name is Marlowe. I'm from L.A. I want to talk to her about a fellow named Chip Bryant. She's my only lead. Chip Bryant? Yeah. She never mentioned that name to me. Anyway, you're too late, Mr. Marlowe. What do you mean? Toby left town this morning. Left she... town? Oh, no. She was going up north to Seattle, I think, on, on some kind of personal business. Now, listen, uh, did she ever say anything to you about a house with a big wheel, where it was, what it means? House with a big wheel? Yeah. No, I'm afraid not. I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe. I guess I'm not much help. I... Well, good night. Thanks, anyway. Now, good night, Miss... Miss... Palmer. 
Yeah. Yeah, Palmer. Good night. As the girl walked back to the bar, the little gold chain I'd spotted around her ankle glinted in the brittle light. And it was like an echo of a memory. A slave bracelet on her was as out of place as a morning glory and a bed of toadstools. But that gave me a crazy hunch, a hunch that somehow in the last six months, a gorgeous blonde named Toby Packler had become a drab brown head with a flat, stiff face. So I didn't chase wild geese to Seattle. Instead, I got in my car and I waited. An hour went by and it was almost dark before she finally came out again. Stepped down into a sleek new convertible and drove north out of town. I'd followed as she turned off a neglected side road and for eight miles twisted through jagged rocky hills toward the mountains. Then suddenly from the crest of a small rise I saw what she'd been heading for. An old stone house squatting in a grove of eucalyptus trees. The girl I figured to be Toby Packler had slowed almost to a stop. I watched her creep along until she was out of sight. Then I got out of my car and I went down for a closer look. Round, brown, shingled couplers reared proudly out of choking overgrowth and on a huge, rusty iron gate in front was the name Escobar. But in the trees behind the house, I saw more. Turning slowly in the stream, there was a giant water wheel. A big wheel! I drove fast back to town and stopped at the only place I could figure for a quick answer. The office of the San Luis Obispo Daily Eagle. A night editor was strictly old school from green eye shade to sleeve gutters. But still very much on the ball. Sir, you want to see the issues of exactly six months ago, you say? Yeah. And that'd be November, about the 8th, 9th, and 10th. Uh, here you are, son. Help us out. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If I'm right, this ought to cinch it. Yeah, uh, 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 careful, Ed. Don't uh. rip those copies. Say, by the way, uh, what story are you looking for? Oh, a small something on a party named Toby Packler. Uh, it's not here. Wait a minute. Maybe it'll be in... Yeah, sure, sure. This is it on page three. A woman identified as Toby Packler of Los Angeles suffered severe injuries to head and face today when the car she was driving skidded into a bridge abutment two miles north of here. So that's how come the face. Miss Packler's condition was announced as critical by Clark Emergency Hospital attendant. Hey, is that all you wanted? That's enough. If that answers your question, young man, I'll put these copies away. Gotta be careful. Wait a minute, wait a minute, that headline. What was that? Let's see that. Santa Barbara jewelry store robbed. Daring thieves escape with gems valued at 110,000, 110 grand. Yeah, I remember that. Two men and a woman. Got away clean, too. Never caught a one of them. Yeah. You don't mean there's a connection between these stories, do you? I don't know. Ask me again after I've checked in at the old Escobar place. Adam Escobar's place? Out in the hills? Oh, you're joking, son. What in the world could that crackpot possibly have to do with the jewel robber in the car wreck six months ago? It beats me, but there's some time you can count on it. Uh, I think you're crazy. But if you're going out there, maybe you should be. Now, what's that supposed to mean? You'll have something in common with Adam. He's lived in his own private dream world for so long, he's uh, forgotten what the real world's all about. Uh, goodbye, son. I'll see you later. <clears throat> I hope. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, the fun is always fresh and furious when Groucho Marx takes over on CBS Wednesday nights 
with his wonderful quiz, You Bet Your Life. Groucho, the master of ad-lib, teams up pairs of opposites and then goes to work with his quips and questions. Very, very solid with laughter, this Groucho Mark show. Hear it this Wednesday and every Wednesday on most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Hiding Place. The road I had thought of Adam Escobar's place is just another hundred-year country home. You know the kind, big, aloof, wrinkled, like an aging nobleman who had retired long ago with his memories. But now that I was there and at the rusted iron gate that resented my intrusion out loud, I changed my mind. I saw now it had to be a degenerate nobleman. Also, the nobleman had to be flat broke. I saw it everywhere. The name Escobar on the gate and copper lettering had turned a sickly spotted green. The scuffed, faded family crest inlaid in tile in the cement walk was cracked and crumbled. The exquisite stained glass door was cracked all the way down the middle. Only the engraved card in the slot under the knocker that said Adam Escobar Esquire was neat and new. A landed gentry's last-ditch stand. <laughs> I was about to knock when... You need not bother knocking, sir. I saw you coming up the walk. I am Adam Escobar. He was a small, slight man of maybe 60-plus with a large head held high in spite of the frayed cuffs patent leather slippers that were cracked and peeling. I introduced myself, then followed him into a musty living room. There, while he apologized for no longer having any servants and poured us each some brandy from a cut glass decanter, I told him all about my search for Chip Bryant, complete with Toby and Lou Race. Frankly, Mr. Marlowe, I am puzzled. Uh, uh, your drink, sir. Oh. Uh, confused. What does all this have to do with me? Well, maybe nothing, Mr. Escobar, but the only guess around is that the jewels were hidden here on your property. A house with a big water wheel the night of the robbery six months ago. But why? For what reason, sir? The police? Oh, probably. Trio wouldn't want to be picked up with the stuff on him. Salute. And yours, sir. Thank you. <coughs> then, then, Mr. Marlowe, soon after they did that, uh, hid the jewels, I mean. The, the girl, the one with the injured face, uh, had that accident. Those are the circumstances. Oh, more or less. And if I've added right, company's coming by 11.30. 10.30 now, it might be a good idea if you left the home grounds for a while. Me? Leave my own home because of some thieves, because of three common... Ah, Mr. Escobar, it's that or the police, and I'd rather not have them in it for a while. I still owe my client the slight benefit of the doubt that's left. You think I am afraid? Is uh, that what you are trying to no, say? No, no, of course not. But I don't see why you should stick your neck out. These people have nothing to do with you. You are wrong, sir. Every honest man has something to do with every criminal. His duty. I know that now, Mr. Marlowe. If... I had known it many years ago. I might still have both my wealth and my property intact. Well, okay. Who knows? When I come back, it come may be... Come back? But where are you going, sir? Into town. I'd still like to catch up to Chip Bryant before the reunion. I don't think there's going to be the time or place for conversation. Conversation? With that Bryant Hoodlum? About what sort? About a mother, Mr. Escobar. A nice old lady who doesn't deserve a kick in the teeth. Back in San Luis Obispo, I returned to the missing person door-to-door -door canvas for the third time that night. Only now I can find myself to the wrong side of the tracks exclusively, and the deeper the dive, the better. I didn't figure that Chip Ryan would show anywhere else. And after a half a dozen quick stops, number seven proved lucky. It was a cramped, greasy bar with a sawdust and cigarette butt floor and a single customer. 
hadn't found Chip, but I was close to the dep of Mr. Lou Race. The barkeep, a ball of fat, wearing a sweatshirt the size of a tent, had his back to me when I entered. So did Race. So when I tapped the tricky man on his padded shoulder and he turned, he was surprised to see me swing. That slicker was an old death. This? Just in case the cat got your tongue. Now get up! Get ready to answer a few simple questions. Hey, hey, what do you think you're doing? You're busting my table. I'll pay you for it. Unless you want to be up to your rolling chins in trouble with the law, Junior, don't try to help the clientele. The cops? Oh, okay, okay. Why didn't you say so? I don't know nothing about this guy. Yeah, and I don't know enough. Now, come on, race you talk or eat sawdust. Which? Uh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll tell you. What, what do you want? One, you, Chip Bryan, and Toby Packler stuck up that Santa Barbara jewelry store six months ago, right? Yeah, yeah, we did it. But they crossed me up. It was, it was when the cops were coming and we split. Splitter, you played hooray for Lou Race and ran without worrying about the others. Uh, what's the difference? The reason Toby and Chip Bryan won't tell you where they hid the jewels, that's the difference? Nuts. You're standing on one ear, peeper. Toby had a different reason for crossing me. Like what? Ah, oh, like I fell in love with that louse Bryant. The kid she baited into coming along with us. By flapping her baby blues, the kid who was supposed to drive the car, period. That's how she crossed me. Anything else? Yeah, the topper. Where's Bryant now? One or two places. Either with Toby Packler or without... Oh! oh. Packler. Good night, sweetheart. <laughs> By the time I made it to the door, the second company, Sam Spade, was across the street behind a parked car and streaking for an alley in the middle of the block. And just as I thought I was going to lose him, he came abreast of a dark doorway, and I saw it. An arm raised quickly, the glint of a knife blade, the arm dropped sharply. Whoever had done it slid away in the dark as suddenly as he appeared. When I was next to race, there was only the caller's card, a black ivory-handled knife, driven to the hilt in between the dapper man's shoulders. He was going out fast. Hey, holy cow, how did it happen, Shut Mr. Shut up, Jones? race, race. Do you know who got you? Tonight. Uh, yeah? Is it, is it got a dark black eye? Black ivory handle, yeah. Why, why, what does it mean? Who's it belong to, race? Uh, the kid. What kid? Bethel. Ryan. He's dead, huh? Yeah. And so are all the prayers of one Mrs. Martha Bryant. Huh? Who's she? Never mind, never mind. Listen, call the cops. Tell them my name's Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I may be able to explain all this later. Right now, I'm due at a house with a water wheel, and I'll explain that later, too. If I'm lucky. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, I'm glad you're here, sir. It is almost 11.30. I know. Have you seen anyone, Mr. Escobar? Uh, no, sir, and I have been watching very closely Good. and in readiness. My father owned this pistol. Oh, well, I hope it's been oiled since. Now, look, I didn't locate ship right... Hey, wait a minute, isn't that a car there turning off the road without any lights on? Huh? Uh, yes, and going along the side of my property line, back to the water wheel. It is a woman, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, no doubt, named Tony Packler. Now, look, you stay here, Mr. Escobar, and keep that blunderbuss ready. Don't forget Chip Bryant's due out here, too, and he's a killer. Keep your eyes open. We'll stand a better chance meeting him one at a time. I went around to the side of the house quickly, then kept close into a long line of eucalyptus trees that ended at a crumbling building that had once been servants' quarters. After that, it was only 20 yards to the water wheel. 20 open yards to the huge ancient circle of hand-hewn wood that complained against the side of a dreary squat stone mill that had long ago died of old age. There in the faint half-light of a hazy moon, I saw 
Toby Packler, kneeling at the corner of the building and with both hands working furiously to loosen a stone the size and shape of a football. There was a gun on the ground next to her. I moved closer, my hand tight on the 38 in my pocket. Then I waited till she had the stone out. And that baby ends a six-month-old secret. Were you That wasn't bad aim, just a warning, Toby. How do you know my name? I read your mail. I get back over to your homespun safety deposit box there and take the jewels out. Go on. All right. Why shouldn't I, soldier? You won't go anyplace with him. Chip will see to that. He'll... They're gone. Get back. They're not here, I tell you. Do you understand? They're gone. Gone. All the homes. Hold it. Every... <laughs> now, tell me, is this where you hit him? Of course. Nobody else knew? Racer Chip Bryant? Grace didn't even know about this place. But Chip... But... And don't dare move, Mr. Mario. Now... Drop your gun. Do it! Miss Packler, Mr. Adam Escobar, Esquire. Keep quiet! So Chief Bryant had the jewels all the time, did he? <laughs> I never thought of that. What do you know about jewels? Oh, quite a bit. You see, Miss Packler, that night six months ago when you stood over there on the other side of the water wheel and told Bryant that you had hidden the jewels and would tell him where later on, I was listening. You knew they were here. I'll tell anything to anybody. It was, of course, quite by chance that I overheard you. But after you had that accident with your car, I searched as diligently as though I were a partner. Searched Miss Peckler for money. That could mean so, so much to me. But I found nothing. Then where are they? You idiot, tell me. Where are they, do you know? Now that I see this hiding place, yes. It was where Chip Bryan stood. Therefore, the jewels are no doubt buried. What do you mean? I think, Toby, that he killed Chip Ryan almost six months ago and that he buried him here on these grounds without knowing that Chip had already found the jewels. What? Chip? Dead? Quite dead. I killed him two days after your accident. I found him searching for the jewels. No. No, you're lying. Chip was supposed to go back to Los Angeles and wait until I was well. Wait for my letter. He didn't, Toby. He came out here, found the jewels, and was killed by our host. <laughs> no wonder I couldn't find them these months that I've searched day in and day out. Scratched and dog and cold and it rained by sun and by dark. No wonder I buried them with him. Yeah, but you didn't bury his knife, did you? That your Captain used on Lou Race tonight. Exactly. Why, Stay you... Back, Miss Peckler. Why? So you can shoot me, then him? Or so that if I'm very lucky, I can run away to live some more? Toby, don't. Live with his smashed, ugly face? Peckler. What have I got to lose? You've been warned. My pretty face is Don't gone. Don't take another step. The man I love is Don't. gone. I the Don't. Ah! Escobar, turn around. Point that gun at me. Fisher, Mr. Marlowe. Now it's self-defense. <laughs> Toby. Toby's bad. Yeah. Real bad, soldier. I had so much once. Pretty face. A guy named Chip. Jules. I, I had everything. I was a, a big wheel. Wasn't I? So much.
Yes, Mr. Altman, the bookends will be sent out to you this afternoon at the latest. Thank you for calling. Goodbye. I'm sorry to have kept you, Mr. Marlowe. I... Well, it may be hard for you to believe. But in the minute I was on the phone, and even while I talked, I think I saw Chipper's whole life before me. I know what you mean. Well, Mrs. Bryant, I found out that your son, Chip... Yes. You found out what? Mr. Marlowe, what are you staring at? Oh, that showcase there. Oh. Our Mother's Day display. It's attractive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very. Mrs. Bryant, Chip was killed in a storm at sea a, a week, a week after you saw him. It, it was off San Francisco. His, his body was never recovered. I, I was told that he was on his way to a new job in uh, Canada at the time. And incidentally, that letter from San Luis Obispo, that, that was all a mistake. That girl never saw Chip again. Outside, I left my car where I'd parked it and walked through the busy city street. You know, it's a funny thing. Lies can cause more trouble in this world than almost anything else, they say. And at the same time, can sometimes bring the most happiness. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and written by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Joan Banks, Herb Butterfield, Louis Jean Height, Bob Griffin, Howard McNear, and Lee Millar. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started at dawn in a Los Angeles taxi and wound up that night on a cliff in the middle of the Pacific. All because of a Dutchman with $50,000, a corpse in a lily pond, and an Oriental with a chauffeur who wanted a cloak made of nothing but feathers. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. <laughs>
with Gerald Moore, star as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Cloak of Kamehameha. message that was delivered by a repulsively wide-awake boy missing it through Front Row Center. Arrived at 6 in the a.m. and had come in two parts. The first scrawled in black ink on a wrinkled piece of paper said, Marlowe, get hold of a taxi cab. Pose as the driver yourself, and at exactly 8 o'clock this morning, come past 8840 North Ogden Drive. Signed, Pollard Schindler. The second half had made more sense. It was printed in neat letters on neat green paper. And under an engraving of Benjamin Franklin read 100 silver dollars, payable to the bearer on demand. So at exactly 8 o'clock, I was behind the wheel of a hired cab, leather jacket, peak cap, toothpick and all, and within hay taxi distance of number 8840. Mr. Pollard Schindler, a round man in square clothes with haircuts to match, was not late. Yes, sir, cab. Of course. Why do you think I'm shouting my head off? I want to go to the International Airport. Do you understand? The International Airport at Inglewood. Okay, okay, Inglewood. International Airport it is. Marlo, the meter. Quick, put the flag down. Every minute I'm being watched. Huh? Oh, yeah, watched by whom, Mr. Schindler? I don't know. Now, listen carefully, Marlo. Later, you have to go to the Halimoana Hotel and wait for a young lady named Lene Collier. Uh-huh. Then, at the hour she designates, you go to her house number 44 Diamond Hip Circle and pick up the clue. Now, wait a minute. Holly Moana, Diamond, what is it? The hotel isn't by any chance in Hawaii, is it? Didn't I mention this in my notes? No, you didn't. Or did you mention picking up a cloak? <sighs> that just proves I haven't been myself ever since yesterday. Yesterday, I received this anonymous letter that's postmarked Honolulu. All it says is, Kamehameha's cloak of golden feathers will bring no less than death. Oh, great. Marlo, have you ever been to the islands? Yeah, twice. Once on business and once pleasure. But then surely you've heard people speak of King Kamehameha. Yeah, I think I do. He was back around the 1780s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big organizer conquered Oahu by driving the defenders over the cliff that divides the island in two and the... The uh... Pali. Oh, yeah, Pali. Now, Marlo, the feathered cloak that Kamehameha wore was about a hundred square feet and every inch of it a golden yellow feather. Uh-huh. And valued at more than half a million dollars. Hey, how come? The feathers. Oh, the feathers. Yeah. Yeah. They are from the now extinct black mamma bird, Marlowe. There was only one yellow feather on each bird. Well, I could explain why they're now extinct. But don't tell me that all this is a game of Collier to Marlowe to Schindler with a cloak that belongs to the museum. Oh, no, Marlowe, it isn't with the cloak you speak of. But Lani Collier has another one. Uh, less valuable, of course. It's one quarter the size. Oh. But it also belongs to the king. And it also is made of the priceless feathers. And is this her property to have in a whole legal like? Yes. Lani is wealthy. About 25. Went to fashionable schools here in California. And as a result, cares more about fun and pretty clothes than she does priceless heirlooms. I can't understand that. Uh, so... For $50,000, I have bought the cloak to resell to a New York millionaire for almost twice that sum. Eh? Uh, he loves the island, Lord. Marlo, huh? I was right. I'm still being followed. Don't look back. Drive faster? No, do nothing. This oh. is exactly as I want it. Now, whoever it is will follow me, not you. 
And when I am in Honolulu, they will still follow me. Well, I take care of the business on hand. Huh? Yes. And there's a reservation for you on the next plane. So, after you leave me and collect your cab fare, which will be $500, you drive away. Then later, Marlowe, get back here, aboard your plane and underway. And tonight, when I've got the cloak? Take it back to your hotel room at the Halimoana and sit on it hard. Because unless I am a complete success as a decoy, you will have your share of trouble, too, I'm sure. But, Marlowe, from what specific direction it will come, I do not know. I got the 500 bucks to cover expenses for my Honolulu trip and was told to keep the change. Back in my apartment, I packed, got another cab, set International Airport, Inglewood, and settled back to think about the crossroads of the Pacific. There I was wrong. Because in the next minute, and those that followed, everything was done the hard way. First, we ran out of gas, then got tied up in a traffic jam, and after that, got stopped for speeding. All of which added up to me at the airport, just in time to watch my plane take off without me. Later, when I told a cherubic clerk in a gray flannel and insipid smile that my name was Philip Marlowe and that I wanted a reservation on the next flight, which was leaving in an hour, things got even worse. You can't be Philip Marlowe, sir. That is not the Philip Marlowe who was on flight 21 that just left. You, uh, you have a reason for saying that, huh? <laughs> I most certainly do. Ah. There were 36 seats on that plane, sir, and when she took off, all 36 were full. I know, I know, I checked them myself, and I don't make mistakes. Well, bully to you, boy. But I happen to be both Philip Marlowe and the man who was supposed to be on that plane. Also, Buster, I'm just about out of patience. How do I get on the next plane or don't I? Come on, I can't stand indecision. Well, well, I... You what? Well, Mr. Marlowe, I... I think it can be arranged. That's better. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure of it. An hour later, the last of California had slipped over the horizon. And there was only clear sky ahead. Oh, I began to relax. My mind drifted pleasantly. Frosted Hawaiian punches. Warm white beaches. And lovely hula hands. When I opened my eyes again, Diamond Head was in front of us. And majestic in the red glow of the evening sun that gave all of the lush Moana Valley I could see a texture of thick velvet. We landed like the airport was made of marshmallows. And a half hour later, I was in the lobby of the Holly Moana Hotel. It was cushioned rattan and Philippine mahogany over cool tiles. And everywhere, laughing, sunburned people wearing anything from Catalina swimsuits to pea-fabricated hula skirts. So smiling both inside and out, I worked briskly to the reservation desk and told a good-looking Hawaiian in white flannel that I was Philip Marlowe. But at his reply, I stopped smiling both inside and out. But, sir, your reservation was taken two hours ago. There must be some mistake. Some mistake? You are Philip Marlowe of Los Angeles, sir. Yes, so right. And look, I've been through this before today because of what I thought was an error due, due, due to... Due to what, sir? Nothing. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you later. There was a large circle of mirror on the wall behind the clerk. And even as we had talked, I caught the reflection of a beautiful tan girl in cocoa brown suit, white pearls, and no stockings. 
with the mention of my name and then a take that made her long blonde hair whip straight out. When she saw me watching her, she pivoted sharply on a spiked heel and hurried toward the lanai under the banyan tree, where there was Hawaiian music and a lot of different-looking people drinking at glass-top tables under a three-quarter moon. I stayed near the reservation desk long enough to light a cigarette, then I followed her. She was seated away from the lobby entrance, and on a hunch that she just might be Lani Kalia, I started for an empty table next to her. But a middle-aged Chinese and gay gabardine, Panama to match, slipped into the chair that I was after. So I forgot about being subtle and addressing her as Mrs. Kalia, introduced myself as an old and dear friend of Pollard Schindler's. One Leland Dunn. Well, this is a pleasant surprise, Mr. Dunn. But tell me, how did you know what I looked like? Well, Paula Schindler's accent doesn't hamper his vocabulary, Miss Collier. Oh. He used the right adjectives, believe me. <laughs> I'd love to. But I can't, Mr. Dunn. Because Pollard Schindler never saw me in his life. All our business was done by telephone. Okay, my mistake. I'm Philip Marlowe, Lanny, and I want to know when we rendezvous at 44 Diamond Head Circle for the cloak of Kamehameha. The cloak? Look, you're no more Philip Marlowe than you are Leland Dunn. And if you need a reason, it's because I just left Philip Marlowe on stage. Now, look, baby, there's only one Marlowe. That's me. I can prove it. I'll bet you can. Forged papers and all. <laughs> I've already been warned to watch for imposters, so quit wasting both your time and mine and get out of my way. I've got things to do. Now, wait a minute, Lonnie. What Listen. For? Proof that you're actually Kamehameha himself? No, thanks, mister. Goodbye. <laughs> two clues. One, an obvious party who'd assume the name of Philip Marlowe, and the other, Lonnie Collier. Less obvious, but more intriguing. So figuring the road company Marlowe would keep, I followed Lonnie, who by this time was getting into a long yellow convertible. Before I got to her, she lurched from the curb, so I ran across the street to what I thought was a taxi. But I was wrong, because it turned out to be a chauffeured limousine and being helped in by a small, swarthy item of dubious lineage in a wrinkled cotton uniform was the Chinese and gay gabardine in Panama to match, who had been sitting near us in the lanai. What counted more was that he obviously sensed my problem. You all wish to follow the girl, sir? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a lover's patch. You know what I mean. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Jonah, quickly. Yes, sir. Uh, you know where she is going, sir? I'm not sure. Maybe Diamond Head Circle. Maybe it's bleeding, sir. Oh, well, then let's make it Diamond Head Circle. Is there a faster way there, a shortcut? Oh, yes, there is. Jola, begin. Hello? Yo, Which means what? Means uh, never mind Diamond Head Circle. Drive fast to the factory instead. And do not move, Mr. Marlowe. Marlowe? Oh, heavy artillery. Okay, Fu Manchu, what's with the factory? You out of the way until the cloak of Kamehameha is mine. Which won't work, believe it or not, clever one. There's another Philip Marlowe who at the moment is a lot closer to that collection of fancy feathers than either of us. You lie. This stupid bit for freedom. A bit that will not get you any... Get up! And truck! Look out! As we hit, I slapped at his gun and jerked the handle of the door and jumped. When I got to my feet, I was on the sidewalk and bruised, but better off than the China boy who was draped over the back of the front seat. A crowd that included a towering Hawaiian policeman who promptly told mine host to shut up gathered in a hurry, so I ran for a cab, gave the driver ten bucks the address I wanted, and took off. The street on which Lani Kalia lived was a neat curving strip that rose sharply from sea level up into the shadow of Diamond Head itself. And we were there in less than ten minutes. Finding number 44 was something else. And another 30 minutes disappeared before we finally parked away from the place which was glass and Kona wood tucked deep behind a thick grove of date palms. 
I told the driver to back down the hill without using his motor. Then I slipped into the grounds and carefully moved toward the house. Until what I thought was the trunk of another palm stepped into my path. Fast. Stop where you are. At the top, which was over six and a half feet, there was a shock of flaming red hair. The whole frame was half covered in dirty yellow shirt, once upon a time white ducks and battered brown sandals. Who are you? Someone with an appointment to see Miss Collier. Why? You belong to this place? Yes, and this place belongs to me as well. All of it, Miss Collier included. She's mine to protect, you understand that? Malahini. Malawitch? Malahini, greenhorn tourist, a kind that I hate. A kind that's ravaging all that's beautiful, stealing the islands from those they belong to. Take it easy, Red. I'm not here to stick your pretty island in my pocket when you're not looking. Well, I want his words with Lonnie Collier. You're like the rest of them, trying with cunning and deceit to turn her head away from these shores and toward the mainland where you come from. I won't stand for it. Why don't we break this round table up and get to the house? I'm in a hurry. All right, all right. But I'm sure that Lonnie will be on my side. So sure, in fact, that we really shouldn't disturb the flower. Should we? Should we, Malahini? <laughs> just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, this Wednesday night, Fred Allen will be Bing Crosby's special guest on Derbingle's CBS Half Hour of Laughter and Music. Earlier this Wednesday, the winner of the $1,000 prize in the Dr. Christian Prize Contest will also be announced by Gene Herschel, star of CBS's Dr. Christian Show. And don't forget that Groucho Marx and Burns and Allen will also be here on most of these same CBS stations this Wednesday. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Cloak of Kamehameha. A red-headed lunatic with a slow, soft voice and fast, hard fist took me by surprise. I wound up flat on my back before I realized he'd so much as moved. Time I got to my feet and took after him. He was sprinting for a bamboo thicket and had a 30-yard lead. That's all he needed to lose me completely. When I finally untangled myself from the jungle, I came out on the road. But then I heard a motor behind me, so I dove for the underbrush again just as the heavy car roared by. I had seen it before. In fact, I'd been in it. It was the limousine that belonged to the Chinese. The back seat was empty, but the half-caste chauffeur Jolo was crouched behind the wheel like his life depended on it. And as I walked back toward the house, I saw that a door was standing open, spilling a shaft of yellow light across the dark grounds. I started up the walk when it came. <laughs> a second later, Lonnie Collier burst into the path of light and ran for the open door. I went after her, caught her by one arm, and spun her around. No, let me go. What happened? Why'd you scream, Lonnie? Back there. Back there in the pond, I heard a noise, and when I came outside, I... I found him there. Found who? Come on, show me. Oh, I, I talked to him just a few minutes ago. Yeah? I gave him the cloak. Now it's gone. He's dead. He's dead with a knife in his back. There. Look there in the water. Oh, brother. Who is it, Lonnie? Do you know him? Yes. Yes, that's Philip Marlowe. as Lonnie tagged the thing in the lily pond with my name. He was face down in the shallow water, three inches of crooked steel and the ugly curved handle of a Chris stuck straight up between his shoulder blades. Somebody had made a very grim mistake, but it took five minutes of argument and a thorough checking of all the credentials I carried to 
convinced the badly frightened Lonnie. I dragged the body out of the water and up onto the grass. And I went through his pockets. What did you find? A card from the Hawaiian Island Art Products Company Limited, number 12, Harbor Street. Mean anything? No. No, I've never heard it. What's that on the back? Flight number and departure time of the plane I was supposed to take out of Los Angeles. Whoever he is, he's been one jump ahead of me all the way. Right up to your lily pond here. Tell me, was anyone with him when you gave him the cloak? A half-caste and a chauffeur's uniform for him? No. No, he was alone. I, oh. I gave him the cloak just as Schindler had instructed me to. Now, listen, Lanny. There was a down-at-the-heel redhead here just before you came out. He claimed to be a friend of yours. Yes, that must have been Lawrence Cochran, the poet. They're making him rugged these days, huh? Lawrence wrote one great poem years ago about two lovers who leaped to death over the valley to keep from being separated and... And their souls turn into birds. It's still very popular here in the islands. Yeah? What happened? Lawrence got the habit of drowning himself in gin. And now the natives call him Papuli. Papuli? The crazy one. Yeah, well, that's closer. He's always hanging around. My mother wanted me to marry him at one time, and now that she's dead, he, he thinks he should look after me. Okay, Lonnie, let him keep thinking so. What do you mean? I mean, you can use a good watchdog right now. So when Cochran comes back, make him park on your doorstep. You but... stay inside and be careful. With guys named Philip Marlowe getting knives in their backs, I've got a few things to do myself, but fast. I'd like to borrow that souped-up convertible of yours. Where are you going? Number 12 Harbor Street in the Hawaiian Island Art Products Company Limited. Harbor Street was a narrow, twisting alley two blocks below King Street. A social sargasso where the derelicts of the Pacific quietly foundered and died built in the damp crevices between warehouses. However, number 12 turned out to be a practically blank wall. There was one small window high up, a door with a heavy iron grill over the glass on which Hawaiian Island Art Products Limited, I.K. Lee, president, was painted in small black letters. And a thin passageway blocked by an iron gate at the side of the building. A light burned inside, but the door was locked. So after I'd ruined my shoe shine and skinned all my knuckles, I managed to climb over the gate and edge down the passageway to the rear, where I could hear water running. The marble fountain playing in the center of a walled garden as oriental as the forbidden city. I eased across its rigid daintiness to an open door, peeked in, and then reached for my gun. Because sitting inside at a sleek white mahogany desk was the Chinese in the Panama. Well, what? This is a somewhat unexpected turn of events. Please, be careful with that gun, won't you? You be careful, Lee. And you won't have to worry about the gun. Tell me something. Why'd you break your neck to get Kamehameha's cloak? You know what'll happen if you try to sell it? My good man, I can sell that cloak every day for the rest of my life. A few feathers at a time. Yeah? The world must be full of feather collectors. Oh, it is. I manufacture the beautiful feather lays that islanders wear on their heads. And while the bird is extinct, desire for its gleaming feathers is not. One or two golden mammal feathers in each lay, and instead of a mere hundred dollars apiece, I can get double that or triple. <laughs> now, do you understand, Mr. Marlowe? Uh, you know, you got things a little mixed up, haven't you, Lee? Mixed up? How so? Your boy Marlowe is dead at Lonnie Collier's place. Oh, that. Uh, no, that was uh, Mr. Blake. An easily accessible gentleman I hired on Main Street in Los Angeles. <laughs> he only pretended to be you for obvious reasons. Oh. 
To intercept the feather cloak, huh? Yes. I've known all about Paula Chindler's plans since their inception. I followed every move he made. In fact, it was I who caused all your trouble on the way to the airport this morning by means of a bribe to your driver. Too bad you won't be able to keep your nest lined with Kamehameha's bathrobe after all, Lee. Because I'm going to walk out of here with it or big chunks of your face. You name it. Where's the cloak now? Uh, I gather from this that you do not have it, Mr. Marlowe. That's what's known as a shrewd observation. Mm. And uh, that uh, Mr. Schindler, as I suspect, has tricked us both. You're stalling, Lee. I'm warning you. Start talking. Oh, that is all I wanted to find out. You're a... Uh, that is uh, judo, Mr. Marlowe. Almost like magic, isn't it? Judo <laughs> can break your back if I tell him, Mr. Marlowe. You behave. Uh, Schindler has the cloak. No doubt about uh, it. So I must find him at once oh. with no interference from you, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, Jolo, you have his gun. So lock him inside. I may need him later. From something the half cast had done to my spine. With the edge of his hand, my, my legs were paralyzed. It felt like the practice dummy in a school for chiropractors. Every joint in my body ached when I moved. So I didn't move until the feeling oozed back into my legs. And I wobbled to my feet and looked around. There was a small high window I'd seen from the street. A heavy chair, a desk with a lamp, and something like a... like a picture framed in bamboo on the wall. I glanced at it and then looked back. I kept looking hard for a long, long time until I finally realized what it meant. The answer to the whole thing was contained in that bamboo frame. I had to get out and get out fast. I unplugged the lamp, plastered my back against the wall next to the door, and tapped on the lampshade to intrigue Jolo into coming in. It worked. When the knob turned slowly, I threw the lamp up at the window. The crash brought the door open with a jerk, and the jerk stepped in with my gun in his hand. What's going on here, Mr. Mark? Where, where are you? Answer. Right here, Cholo. Now get up. I got some magic to show you. A trick I learned in Kansas called the haymaker. I ran down the hall to the street door and out to the car. There was no traffic problem at that hour, so I jammed the gas pedal at the floor and held it there right through the heart of Honolulu and up the twisting road that led to the mountains back of the city. The echoing roar of the motor as it tunneled through the forest lining the road was finally replaced by another roar. Wind. The unending gale that shrieks through a precipitous pass 3,000 feet above the city. A poly. I swung the car to the side of the road and ran the rest of the way. Out to where the rocks rose to a knife edge. that dropped a sheer 1,000 feet to the valley floor. Then I spotted them. Lonnie lying at the cliff's edge and standing over us. His red hair ripped by the wind with the mad island poet. Drunk as a lord and flapping around his shoulders like a pair of huge gold wings was the cloak of Kamehameha. Here with me. No. You belong to the 
the islands, Lonnie. Like this cloak and I. We must never leave. Oh, oh, it'll all be over soon. And our souls will turn to birds. And live forever in this paradise. No, no. stop. Good black coffee in the morning sun. Oh. The big one forgets uh, an ugly night. Uh, right, my friend? Oh, you're absolutely <laughs> That's right. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, more coffee still? Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks, Lonnie. Uh-huh. So, uh, uh, Lee was picked up by the Honolulu police, huh? Sure. I had it all set up. He spent some time in prison. Mm-hmm. And Jolo, too. Uh, by the way, he was still unconscious when we got to him. What in the world did you hit Jolo with, Marlowe? <laughs> Enthusiasm, mainly. <laughs> And that's when you got away and came up to the party, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Phil, how did you know it was Lawrence and where he'd be? Well, it's all tied with that one popular poem that Cochran had written, Lonnie. Oh? That anonymous letter you got in Los Angeles, Mr. Schindler, was a line from that poem. Oh, um... Kamehameha's cloak of golden feathers will bring no less than... How did you find that out, Marlowe? Well, you see, when I was locked up in Lee's factory, I saw a full copy of the poem on the wall in a little bamboo frame. Oh. When I came to that line you just quoted, it stuck out like it was printed in neon. Uh-huh. See, for me, that Peg Cochran is the killer. Going on that hunch, I, I try to look at things from his angle. He was a murderer, sure to be caught, desperately in love, insanely possessive of everything he thought belonged here in the island. And he was an unbalanced lush as well. <laughs> rest of it figured, that's all. Oh, I see. And when he was cornered, he went back to the one important thing that he'd ever done. Exactly, Lonnie. He was lost. Mm. So he identified himself with the hero of his poem and took that as the only way out. It's amazing. Yeah, truly an amazing thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a terrible thing, too, Mr. Schindler. Well, we all got what we went after, didn't we? Each of us. Even Lawrence Cochran. Catch a plane to the mainland, and Lonnie said aloha and left to get ready for our date. I sat on the lanai of the hotel and watched the sweep of the Pacific from Diamond Head to the hills across the harbor. From the white sand of Waikiki to the green shallows over the reef, to the purple depths beyond. As a warm wind whispered through the palms, from somewhere I heard the soft strum of the ukulele. It suddenly occurred to me, what does aloha really mean? The 
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in tonight's transcribed cast were Wilms Herbert, Lynn Allen, Jack Crucian, Dan O'Herlihy, Byron Kane, and Peter Leeds. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a dead witness, a $100,000 bribe, the eyes of a beautiful dreamer and a corpse in a tool bin. We're all tied tight to the same thing. A fox's tail. That wraps it up for tonight's show at 1001 Radio Grime Solvers. We really enjoy good reviews, so when you have a chance, say something nice about a selection of shows or maybe suggest some to us. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.